So this is kind of new and exciting territory for us at Trek about because for the first time, Eric and I are on the same page and the same footing. This Star Trek Discovery is equally new territory to both of us, and I think that's kind of fun. I'm not sure how I feel about it. (laughs) I appreciated and liked being the knowledgeable, smug Trekkie, and I cannot play that role with Discovery, so... I'm not sure how this is going to go. Uh, We may decide that we're not going to do this and we're going to go back to Voyager next week. Oh, Uh, well, I mean, let me let me be frank with us. Uh, Based on the pilot, do we think that Star Trek Discovery will be picked up for the rest of the seven seasons that, you know, the classic Star Treks have been? um, I have no idea how to answer that question. I, I think that this is a... I think the way that I want to get into this conversation is to talk about CBS All Access and and to talk about uh, the the ways in which Star Trek Discovery is very different from the other Star Trek shows that we've watched. And, you know, primarily, I think, you know, leaving TOS aside, because TOS was its own thing. It was a singular, you know, it was it was the first one. It was on in the 60s. It, it failed, right? And the rest of what we know of as Star Trek, TNG, DS9, Voyager, and yes, even Enterprise, uh, are a different beast. They were very successful. They were They were some of the... I think best television that was made in the eighties and nineties, uh, leaving Voyager outside of that, of course. Well, but it still did get seven seasons. It it did still get seven seasons, absolutely. And the thing about Star Trek Discovery that I'm I'm finding, you know, I watched it last night, obviously, and I uh, I will say that I watched the first two episodes. I immediately went back and started the first episode again okay uh because i had a very particular reaction to the cold open of the first episode which i'll get to but for me what is really interesting about star trek discovery is is how uh i think it, it hues very closely to the prestige storytelling mm. style and visual style of television of this era and for better or for worse right like i think that star trek in general leaving again leaving tos aside if you look at tng and let's take tng as an example because that was uh kind of similar to star trek discovery that was the show that was the attempt to bring star trek back recreate it for a new generation bring it back to television of course it wasn't nearly as long a time but you know 18 years versus 12 years but and a completely different media landscape as well, but but kind of a similar thing. We can we can compare and contrast them. And TNG and DS9 and Voyager, I think, visually looked like a lot of other television that was on at the time. Discovery looks very visually like a lot of the television that's on right now. And I think that's really all I want to say about that. I mean, uh, well, I actually think it's kind of comforting that Star Trek Discovery is not trying to do something visually different from what a lot of other prestige television is doing right now. On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, I really, I I was talking about this on Twitter. I really, really hate that whole blue and orange science fiction color scheme that's in every single science fiction movie these days. Like that is a reason I do not watch many science fiction movies because I think that color scheme is ugly. And here we have blue and orange over the entire show. And it's an, I mean, it's, you, you see these gorgeous shots of nebulas and stars and stuff, but it's just this ugly, samey color scheme. I mean, 
I won't go so far as to say the show looks kind of generic, but it doesn't seem to have the visual panache that I think, you know, TNG and such did, and, you know, I wish they would hold the fucking camera steady for a minute. That 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 is some of my issues with, you know, the the visual language of cinema these and TV these days, but... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of with you. I think that I don't notice the color stuff. I mean, I, I think that if, if you have a problem with it, then that's totally valid. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't notice it. I, I don't know. I actually don't know what you're talking about when you say things are blue and orange. Like, okay. I, I look at this and I say, I don't see it. I mean, like, yeah, explosions are orange and the uniforms are blue. But aside look from at the, that, I'm not look, really sure. Look at the I'll, I'll go back and look at it oh, again. Yeah, look at the computers specifically. Like, that, I think, is where it's very blatant to me. But Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that's fair. I'll go back and look at that again. But but to me, I think that, you know, again, the, the, the visual style, the sort of directing style, the, the shaky cam, the Dutch angles, the lens flare, you know, these are all things that uh, I don't necessarily like. But I, I don't know that I can necessarily criticize Star Trek Discovery for using them because that's how science fiction yeah. television is shot these days. And Star Trek Discovery, ha- you know, Star Trek in general, like I said, has never been a franchise that has broken outside of the visual box that television was in at that time. And that's very so, fair, yeah. So to me, it doesn't bother me. Like, I, the lens flare is, I actually wrote in my notes, like, I was like, please stop with the lens flare. <laughs> like, it, it's distracting. It's artificial. I don't like it. And I think that the second episode did a lot less of that stuff. I, I do wonder, you know, it was directed by two different, two different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see what happens with that. You know, I also think that in terms of the, the fact of the matter is these two episodes of Star Trek Discovery, and, and of course, we're talking about the Vulcan Hello and, and Battle at the Binary Star, which I don't think we're going to talk about as separate episodes, even yeah. though they are very different. Um, In my mind, main, well, yeah. Well, the two main takeaways for me is that the Vulcan Hello and Battle at the Binary Stars, um, I don't know why they're two separate episodes. I think that the first episode is not very it's not very good in a certain sense. Yeah. And I liked the second episode a lot more. I was frankly a little worried about the show after the first episode. Yes. Then I then I went and immediately watched the second episode and I was like, oh, okay. I see what they're doing here. I just don't know why they separated it out like that. I mean, I, yeah. I do know because that's what serialized television does these days, but it's still a little weird to me because I think – as a piece, this is a this is a story that needs those two halves to work, and mm. it would have worked a lot better if they had done the traditional Star Trek premiere of a 90-minute episode. Yeah, in some ways, I considered this to be the two-hour pilot movie, and particularly—here's uh, the thing. I think this was a really shitty pilot. As an episode of television, we'll talk about it, but as a pilot, I did not like this. And particularly with the, the preview of next week— and the implications that, you know, Burnham is going to be, you know, dealing with her and she'll go on Jason Isaac's ship and all of that. This is a prologue movie. I mean, what we in some ways, we haven't had the pilot in some ways, if you know what I mean. Like, there's I, – I feel like this is everything that's happening before the real story is. This is setting everything up for the story to start. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And I, I, I kind of compared this in my mind to what if the Deep Space Nine pilot had been the the – story of ben cisco at wolf 359 right and and that's kind of the difference here it it 
it doesn't start in media race. It starts before the action. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think it's going, you know, in general, I think Star Trek Discovery is going to be a different critical approach than, than we normally take. And we have taken over the five years of this podcast only because I don't know where this is going and I don't know what they're going to be doing. And so we can only guess at the shape of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, we have to engage with this as episode by episode. And so, I mean, and I have my own theories about what they're doing, but I don't know. I, I feel very conflicted about, uh, these two episodes of television. Now, again, I will say that I am much like if the first episode had been much better than the second, I think I'd be worried about the show as it is. I liked it. And that's about, as much of a positive reaction as I have right now. I, I, I'm kind of with you. I mean, like I said, I didn't, I came away feeling a little disappointed. Yes. The second episode is better than the first, but I, I guess I'll put it this way. Um, when I, I, now I knew very little about it going in. I didn't really pay attention to any of the pre-release stuff. I saw a shot of the Klingons, which, oh, I can't wait to talk about. And, <laughs> you know, I knew that Michelle Yeoh was involved in it. And I didn't realize that, you know, I thought she was going to be the captain. And when I, when I saw in the first episode, they said, you know, special guest star Michelle Yeoh. And I thought, Oh God! If they kill her off at the end of one of these episodes to be cheap drama, this is gonna suck. I w- I hope they keep her on as you know, a- a- and as she's saying to Berman, you know, oh you can get your own command. And I figured, okay, well maybe the show will be she gets her own command. And every so often, you know, on the season finale, you know Michelle Yeoh can guest star again. But they killed her off for cheap drama, and I, I it, it's we have to reckon with prestige television killing off its characters. You know, we have to reckon with the whole Game of Thrones thing, and this is why people watch. But in a way, I feel, for the most part, none of the characters in the pilot we are intended to feel attached to because most of them die during the battle. I mean, it really only looks like Saru is the only character. He's the only character I liked, and he's one of the few who appears is going to stay on. And, I mean, I was talking with, you know, one of my friends, and he's like, yeah, we're not going to see Jason Isaacs for that long. He's just, he's probably going to be killed off, you know, for drama as well. I mean, you're going to have this, I'm going to have this cynicism about the lifespans of all of these characters. And I don't know if that's something that I want in a Star Trek show. Well, I I have a couple, a couple of thoughts about that. I I think that first of all, I I don't agree with you that, that killing off uh, Captain uh, Giorgio is cheap drama. I think that, what is so hard to know is what you know where this is going to go. Of course, if, if you if you treat these two episodes as the the prologue for Star Trek Discovery, and yes, you could have started. I mean, I'm assuming in the third episode that we see Star Trek Discovery, the character that Jason Isaacs is playing is going to be there. You know, all Anthony Rapp and, and all the other main cast members that have already been revealed are going to be in the show at that point. And that these two episodes are almost something like a like a side story. It's it's a you know it's it's the if you're reading a novel and mm-hmm. it's sort of the like this is what happened and now here we are a year later and you know what I mean? Like it's that prologue approach to it. And 
I actually really liked it. I think that for me, again, the visual style of the show is whatever. I don't necessarily think that I, I don't really look for a visual um, inventiveness in Star Trek. And so to me, I don't really care about that. If they want to hew very closely to that sort of thing, then that's fine. But I look at the storytelling and what they're doing and I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm on board with this. I, I think that I can see what they're trying to do. I can see pulling the rug out from someone in that respect is a very ballsy move. I think that killing off Captain Georgiou is probably going to be more important than than you may think it is. And because I, I I feel like that is going to be the the redemption arc for Burnham. And yes. And so I feel like that's probably going to have more ramifications than you think it does. I And it's true. This could be, you know, for example, Picard is haunted by his experiences on the Stargazer, right? Uh, Cisco is haunted by his experiences on Wolf 359. And so this will be the event that haunts um, Burnham. You're right. This is she has failed as utterly as she can at the beginning of this. So, you know, she's. It looks like she's ending, you know, she's going to end up in, in prison. She's going to get some kind of Tom Paris style chance. But, you know, it, it is difficult to say this as a, I, 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 I will, I would be continuing with the series, whether or not we were doing the podcast. And I guess I wish that episode three were here, maybe just because I'm ready for the show to start. That, that maybe yeah, that's d- it. It doesn't feel like it's started yet. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it started. And actually, I think that your your um, analogy of the Stargazer is, is really interesting because essentially what we have here is I think if they had been approaching this on a storytelling level as a, as a more traditional Star mm-hmm. Trek show, what you would have is you would have had Burnham getting her first command. Yes. And she would have been assembling her, her crew it, it very similarly to how Encounter at Farpoint started or how the Caretaker started. Not, not Caretaker, um, Emissary started. Uh, you know, we were very unclear about whether or not Captain Janeway had been the captain of Voyager and caretaker for a while. And that probably was a, you know, in hindsight, that was a bad sign for uh, Voyager's uh. <laughs> Voyager's attention to detail. But but in terms of, you know, what this show is trying to do differently, because let's be clear, like, I don't necessarily like if they had never made another Star Trek show, I think I would have been fine with that. Like. There's a lot of Star Trek out there. We have covered a lot of Star Trek. And I don't need TNG again. I don't need DS9 again. I don't need Voyager again. I want If they're going to do a new Star yes. Trek show, I want them to do something different. And it seems like they're doing that. And, and I'm on board for that. I mean, this is a case of be careful what you wish for. Because I have been saying this entire time. It would be interesting to have a more serialized Star Trek. To have a more plot-based Star Trek show. And... I guess there is – the big thing is there is no real meat to this yet. I mean, one of the joys of Star Trek is you get to hang out with a bunch of characters. Well, we haven't really met the characters yet. You know, We, we haven't even seen the ship. They haven't done anything. I, 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 I mean, everything that's happened in these two episodes, the characters, such as they are, don't really do anything. Stuff just happens to them, which, again, given that this is the setup for the show where I assume they will be – actively you know trying to solve these problems you know that's fine at the same time as a as a as a two-hour pilot movie i didn't love it i i think that's fair and i think at the same time uh i'm i'm actually kind of heartened by that because 
that's Star Trek. Hmm. I mean, Star Trek doesn't do pilots well. Yeah, that's and, true. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> like if this had been like a brilliant pilot, I, I may feel I may feel a little yeah. more worried about the show, frankly. You know, like that's fair. I don't know. There there's a there's a jankiness to Star Trek that I love, and I think that you know, for example, like when I watched the cold open and I felt very strange about it because I thought the editing was strange. I thought the line readings were stilted. I, I it didn't feel like a real conversation. I didn't have any context for their conversation. Yeah. And I watched it again and it made more sense. And I think part of it was just getting used to the Star Trek type dialogue again. Yeah. Getting used to these two characters. You know, we don't know who they are at this point. We don't know what they're doing. And, and for example, learning that Berman has been raised Vulcan that kind of puts her stiffness into a bit more of a context. You know, we're, we're seeing her and we're seeing a human who is acting very kind of cold, colder than we would expect, even with somebody that she obviously respects. But then, you know, OK, well, she's she has Vulcan training. I get that. Yeah. I mean, one of one of the things that, that you know, I always generally tried to, to do um, is is dissuade you from speculating but i think i'm going to treat the discovery podcast a little differently because i'm going to speculate because i want to speculate um i i think that what i'm seeing here is they are setting up burnham as the inverse of spock where spock struggled with his half human side uh he and his father sarek who of course burnham also uh well not her father but her they call foster father they call her yeah her foster father essentially he sarek calls her his ward um, which is a very particular term that if when you see in the beginning of Battle of the Binary Star, uh, the the flashback where Burnham first meets Captain Georgiou and Burnham is extremely Vulcan yeah. in those scenes. She is uh, Spock, essentially. And where you see her seven years later, she is much looser. She is much more human. She is showing emotion. And it seems to me that burnham's journey through those seven you know if this again if this had been a more traditional star trek show we may have gotten seven seasons of captain georgia yeah. burno on on the shenzhou um what we're seeing now is the inverse of the spock journey where burna burnham is becoming human and that's kind of interesting to me and there are, I think, intended to be some morph resonances there, too. I mean, she does have more or less the same exact backstory, only survivor of a of, of a colony raid and, you know, raised in a completely different culture than, you know, she 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 is and, you know, struggling with elements of both of those. Yeah, yeah. And and I wonder, though, I mean, there there's a I, I wonder what you make of her decision to attack captain Giorgio. i mean I, I don't think there's any way around it right like yeah. there's an element to which like we don't have the full shape of this yet we we don't really know who this character is yet and so to have her do something like that which is so outside of the context for any starfleet officers really that we've ever uh had as a main character in a star trek show um what do you make of that i mean like that's kind of a well, that's a kind of a ballsy choice, I think. It's it's a difficult thing to wrap my head around. Well, I'm coming around to it a little more because one of the big criticisms that I have of the episode is that neither Berman nor Michelle Yeoh, and I can just have a block on her name, um, Captain Giorgio. Um, Cap- yeah, you're saying Berman. Her name is Burnham. Burnham. What a- yeah, th- th- 
this is a problem with me and names in general, but I think this is a problem for Discovery, but we'll get into that. Um, I, Because I, I, I was saying the two of them they completely disagree on the on the right tack to take. I don't think either of their uh, options really do turn out to be right. There really doesn't seem to be any way of dissuading this Klingon attack. It seems almost inevitable. And again, now that I'm talking about it, maybe no, maybe having the idea from the beginning that Michelle Yeoh is only going to be in these two episodes gives it an air of tragedy, especially if it's a prologue. But, I mean, that may be kind of the point. We have seen officers uh make decisions that you know go against the captain's wishes i mean that happens in voyager all the time and even spock has done that kind of a thing um look at the menagerie um sure and in all of those cases we can completely justify their actions even even if it is after the fact they were doing the right thing their plan turned out to be right they were if Burnham is doing the wrong thing and doing it in the completely wrong way. I think it is meant to highlight that, you know, this is her beginning point. She has not fully developed enough to have her own command. And maybe, uh, you know, Captain Giorgio, her flaws that she was short-sighted and didn't quite, you know, give her the training that she ought to have. I think she kind I think they all kind of assumed that because Burnham was Vulcan trained and did come off very cold and logical at the beginning. Uh, and, you know, if she has a little more, if she's able to accept her human side, that's okay. But I think there may have been a few too many assumptions on Captain Giorgio's part to where she thinks that, no, you know, she is going to make the right decision every time and she makes the exact wrong decision here. Well, I'll ask you a, a, a very particular question flat out. Are, are, are we supposed to think that Captain Giorgio is a good captain? I think she is a peacetime consigliere, if you know what I mean. She is probably, you know, we only see very small glimpses of who she is as a person. I mean, I would have liked to have spent a little more time in her ready room and seeing the stuff that she has there. But I will say, though, that the first time we see her ready room in the very, you know, sort of after yeah. the cold open of the first episode, she is listening to classical music. So, yeah, we are watching. We are watching a Star Trek show, Richard. <laughs> I think she might be a uh, be a little more in the Picard mold of things, where she is. She does seem to think that peace can, you know, diplomacy and attempts at peace can solve any crisis. Just as the admiral seems to think that too. I mean, he may be a little more. You know, I, I I I I don't think either of them want to be want violence, and none of them are comfortable with violence, and. I mean, there is that I, – I, I found it very – when Burnham is explaining the concept of the Vulcan hello and, you know, she says that, you know, the Vulcans had to shoot first because violence is what the Klingons respected and that respect eventually led the door to peace. And, I mean, to me that's her, essentially her saying you need to always punch Nazis because they're not going to listen to diplomacy. And Michelle Yeoh is the kind of person who's saying, no, there should always be peace. We, you know, must always – we can always talk it out with people, you know, no matter what, everybody just wants peace. Nobody wants to fight. And I think that Burnham is being naive to think that, you know, they can just shoot one ship and it'll be fine because as we see the crusade that they are on is a lot bigger than that. But I also think it's naive to say that this is a, this is a conflict that can only be solved diplomatically. Right. Yeah. Cause one of the things of course about Star Trek in general is that it has a very, 
uh, a very consistent respect for for life and for different cultures. And you know, as we have seen time and time again in Star Trek, Klingons do not respect peace and do not respect a footing of peace. And so that rings true to me. Now, I want to talk about the Klingons, but I don't want to move away from from Burnham quite yet because sure. I, I think that the other thing that I struggle with, with the character of Michael Burnham, uh, aside from the fact that she has a man's name, I'm not sure what that means or anything. I think it just might be the fact that Brian Fuller likes to give his female leads male names. That's true. Um, I mean, I I think, you know, casting Michelle Yeoh as a woman named Philippa Gregory is, Philippa Giorgio is a little strange too. Like, they're strange names, but anyway. They're they're very Star Trek names, and I think that's the one thing that the the show gets really right. Um, I mean, we have to remember, of course, that we weren't alive in 1986 to hear the name Jean Luc Picard for the yes, first time. of course. But what the fuck? What the fuck did people think about that? You know, <laughs> um, I'm sure people thought it was crazy. That that for me, the the thing that I struggle with, and the thing that I think is going to be really interesting to see how the show develops her character and how it reveals more facets about her upbringing and and you know what happened to her on that colony world and and what her life with Sarek and Amanda was like, is that Burnham strikes me as a much greener officer than she's supposed to yeah. be. Yeah, I I mean, let they, in that flashback at the beginning of the second episode, I, I don't think she's supposed to be in starfleet she's not in a starfleet uniform so i'm not sure what exactly the 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 purpose of her living on the shenzo was then of course she gets a commission or something i don't know if she goes to starfleet academy or what maybe she wasn't on the shenzo for the full seven years Mm. but you know to go from not being in starfleet seven years ago to, to being the first officer on on a ship is pretty quick and at the same time she doesn't strike me in these two episodes in the present day as a character that that has had the necessary experience to be a first officer on a starship i mean i think it's very uh, it's oh it seems to me that this is a version of starfleet that's a little soft almost again they they they've sure yeah they've just been doing you know PC stuff and uh, exploration and, you know, going to new worlds. And yes, they have got into conflicts. I don't doubt that they can, you know, hold themselves, hold their own in a fight. But for the most part, they aren't dealing with large scale wars like the series is about to start off with. So I, I, I think it just does totally take them by surprise. She's not used to making these kinds of calls where there is this much disaster. I mean, that's, I think, the point of the opening sequence where, you know, what are they doing? They're fixing a well, and then they're just signaling their ship. I mean, that's really all that they need to do. They're fine at the survival aspect of that, but that doesn't really hold a candle to war. Yeah, because, you know, I I don't necessarily want to turn this into, like, a canon podcast, but but I think that— you know, for me, if I think to the the timeline, and of course, you don't know pretty much anything about about Enterprise, for example. Yeah. But, um, the the first episode of Enterprise starts out with uh, first contact with the Klingons, and so so that took place about a hundred years before this, ninety okay. years before this, something like that. And then they have this line in the episode where they basically say that they've had very few contacts with the Klingons or the Klingon Empire in a hundred years. So, so the, the 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 implication there, of course, is that Starfleet has 
their their main antagonist in TOS up until the TNG era, the Klingons, hasn't been around. We mm-hmm. we know from Balance of Terror that the the Romulans uh, after the war that was established in that episode, um, no one heard from them for a long time. So we have the Klingons and the Romulans, the two main antagonists of the the original series era, which is the era we are in. Um, even though it's 10 years before. I, I would say, so this safe is safe enough to say, uh, essentially. Yeah. Where like Kirk and Spock is they're either beginning their careers or something like that is. Roughly- yeah. So if I, if I have the timeline correct, so, so this would be taking place at, at pretty much the same time as the cage. So Spock would be okay. assigned to the enterprise under captain Pike. Um, but, but Kirk and Spock did not get assigned to work together okay. until about 10 years later. So, I look at that and I say, yeah, I think that makes sense. I think that what you see in this episode, you're right, is a very soft Starfleet, a very soft Federation. And that's not to say it's a bad thing, but it's the case that I don't think that they're necessarily prepared for what is about to happen to them well and i i and this is you know and this is also making me like who knows maybe we're really wrong and maybe the show is not going to go in this direction but i i look at who originally created the show brian fuller this is someone who loves star trek who is very invested in it and yes of course he's no longer involved in it but a lot of the dna of the show that he created is still there that i really do think that this show may be an attempt to to, to bridge the gap between Enterprise and the original series to say, you know, how did they go from this to this? And this might be the answer. I don't know. We're going to have to see. I mean, I'm reminded of the episode of DS9 that takes place on Ryza, where you have the one guy who's basically saying, you know, the Dominion is coming and we're all just sitting around and, you know, enjoying this pleasure place. And that was kind of also home from Paradise Lost. Um And this is the real big contradiction at the heart of the Federation is that a soft Federation is the ideal, right? Everybody in the Federation ultimately wants a lifestyle where everybody is, you know, diplomatic. Everybody is peaceful. People are enjoying each other's cultures and, you know, seeing new things and just where everything is pleasant. At the same time, there are there are groups, the Klingons, the Dominions, the Borg, who do not wish that, and there does need to be a segment of the Federation that is always able to fight that. And yeah. I, you know, I guess one of the big questions that could be at the heart of this is the big conflicts that the Federation has had, and I'm talking about like the Borg and talking about the Dominion has been the Federation dealing with an entity that is their exact opposite philosophically. And the big question of those is how do you fight that while still remaining true to who you are? How do you, I mean, episodes like in the pale moonlight are dealing with this. So we may, we may need to make some moral compromises. How can we make these moral compromises and still be Federation? And I think Burnham is a little more willing to make certain moral compromises, but I also think that, uh, you know, Giorgio and her her influence is going to keep her to find the core of what being Federation is. Right. Because I, I, I think that that that's all right. And and what I maybe the other thing to say about Burnham or the last thing to say about Burnham, because it's God, there's so much to talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about the Klingons. We haven't talked about, you know, is that to me, Burnham strikes me in these two episodes as a character that is both more integrated than Spock and and less less integrated than Spock. I mean, mm. 
you know, it seems to me that the the arc of the ca- ca- Captain Georgiou obviously seems like she was a, a, a very strong presence in, in Burnham's life. She was a mentor to her, a role model. And and they had a very close relationship. I mean, I think that one of the strengths of these two episodes is that I really bought their relationship. And yeah. I really bought that they had a history together. That's that's hard to do in in, you know, eighty minutes of television and, and it pulled it off, I think, extremely well. Mm-hmm. Testament to the but, acting, I would say, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think that they were both very well cast. But but to me, you know, Again, I go back to Burnham in that flashback and looking at Burnham now, and I, I think that there's an there's an kind of a difference there where Burnham seems like almost there's a there's a a, a, a switch that is being flipped or something mm. where you know she's she's not as logical as a Vulcan. It seems that Captain Georgiou and her experience, Burnham's experiences working on the Shenzhou have more integrated her human and her Vulcan upbringing. And so she is, she is logical. She was brought up in a Vulcan society in the Vulcan fashion. She went to the Vulcan science Academy. She went to the Vulcan learning center. You know, she was kind of brought up as a Vulcan by Vulcans. Yeah. And this, I mean, the scene but, where she is, you know, arguing with the computer to let her out of the brig is I think a perfect example. This is somebody who can out logic a computer. Right. Right. Which is great. And I, I like that. I think that was probably my favorite yeah. scene of hers in the entire two, you know, two part episode. By the but way, just a I, side note, how weird is it to have a computer that's not Major Barrett? That is I almost know, it's sad. sad. Yeah, I know. I was really hoping it was going to be her because apparently she did um, record all of her voice phenotypes before she died. But anyway, yeah, it is what it is um, that that to me, it really that the key scene is is when she makes that decision to uh attack Captain Georgiou and and try and and you know take over the ship and that seems to me the case where her emotions are overwhelming her she doesn't know what to do with them and her logic takes over and she makes a really bad decision and she does it badly i mean there's nobody on the crew who seems to believe her everybody kind of immediately i mean suru is you know he he uh, Suru has a lot more bravery than he gives himself credit for, but he's immediately like, no, something's up here. You know, my, my, my spider senses are tingling. You know, nobody, nobody buys it. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's really the case. And I, I, I do think that um, Martin Green really pulls that off in that scene where, I mean, she looks like she's on the verge of tears. Yeah. So, okay. Uh we could take this in a couple different directions, but um, we probably need to talk about the Klingons. So, so let's talk about the Klingons. I wish they weren't the Klingons. Uh, you know, even the accent doesn't sound right, which is about as you know weedsy fancy as I can get. But it doesn't. I don't know. Just something. These are not the Klingons that I have come to know and love, and I guess that's part of the point. I mean. Certainly by the time of TNG, DS9, which is supposed to be, what, 100, 150 years later? Um, 100 years later, yeah. Their culture can change. I mean, the thing that I've always noticed about the Klingons is that they have all of these rituals through which they allow their, you know, violence and their passion to be displaced. And this doesn't really seem like that, but I don't know. They just don't seem like quite like Klingons. Um... So I think that I'm okay with that. And it's... I think the reason I'm okay with it is that 
one of my major problems with Star Trek has always been monocultures. Yes. And if the show is going to go down a road of, of showing us a different cultural tradition amongst the Klingons, I think I'm okay with that. And it is also, I, I think, clear that this is a new movement within the Klingons. And this is, um, what's the fellow's name? I wrote it down. Um, Takovma. Um, Takovma. You know, this is his interpretation of a particular branch of Vulcan uh, philosophy, spirituality, theology, whatever you want to call it. And Klingon, it, you mean? You said Vulcan. Sorry, I meant Klingon. Um, now I want to see a Vulcan Klingon. <laughs> um, there is no – I would not say that the Klingons are a direct analog to any world culture in this, but in some ways – uh, we are dealing with a very particular form of fundamentalism that might not necessarily represent Klingon thoughts as a whole, and uh, one which takes this uh, takes the culture by force. Is I mean, he is very charismatic. He does have you know he does get some success. There is a thrill to this. I mean, it, it, a, a, any culture that has been taken over by fascism and fundamentalism does get yanked a certain way and it is possible he's just yanking the Klingons to a direction that they kind of drift away from from the time by the time of TOS and TNG. It's it's certainly possible. I think that it's very difficult to talk about because we don't know where it's going. And Yeah, and especially I- because I mean Here's another, you know, this is part that I didn't expect. Takovma is killed at the end, and his albino apostle gets, you know, is implied to be his successor. And I know plenty of people have already commented on that, but... It, it, it's a little problematic, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but but I think that, I don't know, I... The, 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 the change in the Klingon appearance... I don't know how I feel about it. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I am trying to keep an open mind because uh, humans don't like change. And yeah. the, nor- the, the the natural human reaction is to have a, a, a bad reaction or to not like something that is different from, from what you knew. And so I don't know. And I'm also trying to be a little... Uh, broad-minded or a little you know a little zen about it because klingons have changed before klingons are probably going to change again yeah uh it, it was apparently i i read this somewhere that it was apparently brian fuller's wish that they be bald who knows why hmm. I, maybe he really likes bald men i have no idea well i guess um, my question is let's say let's call them a different species name for the uh duration of they're a completely new species uh that we're dealing with they're not klingons would that sting less is it the fact that they're calling them Klingons? Probably. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And I, this is hard for me, too, because I don't necessarily like Klingons that much. I mean, we, you know, that is something that I have said over and yeah. over again in, in TNG and DS9. Not so much in Voyager, because Voyager doesn't really deal with Klingons, um, aside from Belana Torres. But I find them kind of tiresome. I, I think that the franchise goes back to the Klingon well over and over and yeah. over again. Because some there's a subset of Trekkies that really fucking like Klingons. I am not one of those subsets of Trekkies that really fucking likes Klingons. So to me, all of these sort of inconsistencies and problems and, you know, is this a bad idea? Is this a good idea? I'm not super invested in it because 
to me, it's enough that they say they're Klingons. It's enough that they are, they look like Klingons, you know, whatever. I mean, I just, I don't know. It's, I, oh. it's, I, I don't know where it's going and I don't know to what degree the show is going to try and make this make sense. I mean, are they going to go out of their way to try and say that the Klingons of the TNG and DS9 era are a different series of houses and the Klingons of the TOS era are another series of houses? Like, I don't know. I I honestly don't know. See, part of it is that, especially by the TNG DS9 era, this is the this These are the Klingons in a decadence period. And, um, This is, you know, in Discovery, they are not in a decadence period. They are in a rebuilding period. They are trying to reclaim their glory and their greatness and their purity and all of that. But what keeps what keeps in what I'm keeping in mind is Worf will often say, you know, Klingons don't laugh. And we've talked about how many times like that's really not the case. I mean, I think even Dax, you know, scolded him for saying that because we have plenty of examples of Klingons laughing and celebrating and being exuberant and being very passionate. I don't think the Klingons that we've seen on this are people who laugh very often. I don't think that I don't see them having decadent orgies. I don't see them, you know, gorging themselves on blood wine. Um, and but so, isn't that but isn't that okay though? I mean, because well, yeah, and and uh, I, essentially what we're looking at is is a group of of it's a cult. Yeah, and. I guess that's – I don't like these Klingons. These are not the kind of Klingons that I like. Uh, these are not the kind of Klingons I, – I, I think and D, I think DS9 has made it clear that there are plenty of Klingons that, you know, as long as you're okay with getting a little hurt, there are plenty of Klingons that you can party with. These are not Klingons you can party with. And so I, I guess I can accept this characterization – I can see how they fit into the Klingon culture, but I just don't personally like these particular Klingons. And I think this is a this is a criticism I would say about the show itself because it is a much more serious show than anything we've seen before. I mean, one of the things you say a lot is, you know, if you love Star Trek, you like the goofiness and the jankiness and and the weird and quirkiness. And there's very little of that there. Maybe it will Give us some room to breathe. Maybe Jason Isaac's ship will be a little more fun. You know, may- maybe that will be the case, and we're just starting on a very straight-laced and conservative and somber ship, especially given the gravity of events that's happening. But this seems like a series made by people who are embarrassed about the camp of Star Trek. I will reserve judgment on that. I don't yes. think you can really say that or not. I mean— Well, this pilot is— I- I think back to this, this pilot is so different Mm -hmm. from the other Star Trek pilots that were basically about introducing the setting, introducing the characters, giving each character a moment. We haven't met most of the main characters of this show yet. This is, this is, we don't know that this is what the show is going to be like. And so I honestly have no idea. And I think that's kind of okay. I think that's kind of refreshing. I mean... I don't know that I agree with you that this show is 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 serious. I mean, I think certainly the the story that these two episodes are telling are serious, but and and certainly the reactions of most of the characters are serious and appropriately so. Seri- again, yeah, given- right. It's it's a serious situation, and 
I, I don't know. I, I, I'll be curious to see where it goes. I don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, and, of course. In all cases, we only know, we only have two hours of this, an hour and a half of this. There is only – and it's the backstory. Again, may, maybe the whole thing will be about – I mean Burnham is really good at dealing with logic. She's really good at dealing with uh, serious emotions, but – you know, maybe she, maybe maybe her discovery will be learning to laugh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It it certainly could be. I mean, I think that Captain Giorgio had some some uh, good little grinning moments. Yeah. I think Saru is obviously supposed to be a little bit of comic relief in the show. And I don't know. I think that I think the last thing I want to say about Klingons is. It is a big change to have Klingons speaking in Klingon with subtitles. Um, I also don't know how well that decision works. I I found it very distracting. Uh, I mean, you say like the camp of Star Trek, the jankiness of Star Trek. Uh, the actors are still having a lot of trouble talking through yeah. those teeth. Yeah. Um, and I kind of like that in a sort of like consistency way. <laughs> Uh, that they didn't try and like cover that up or, or figure out a way to, to not have them have a little lisp because they're talking through some really ugly teeth uh, prosthetics. Um, but I don't think that that it, it seems to me that that is one of the creative decisions that I, I find that I'm a little worried about because they they seem to be trying to imbue the Klingon culture and the Klingon scenes with a gravitas and a seriousness by having them speak their own language with subtitles. Yeah. That I'm not sure works for Star Trek. I mean, yeah, thematically, especially again, given that these are Klingon supremacists and they're talking about their purity. And of course, you know, yes, we would understand it was that television convention where the actors are speaking with in English, but we are to understand that, uh, they're speaking another language. Um, but that's the thing. Um, only really the most insufferable nerds really care about what language the people are really speaking, right? Like in DS9, everybody's speaking English for convenience except for time to time. Uh, it's used as a couple of jokes or throwaway references, but for the most part, nobody cares. And right. I wouldn't have noticed it if they had been speaking in English the entire time. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I, I think it puts up a wall between the character and and the the audience that they may be a little difficult for me to to handle. And I think that we'll see what happens. I don't know. I mean, we don't know exactly the the shape of what this season is going to be like. I don't know if every the Klingons are going to be in every single episode. I, I certainly hope not, and I, I certainly have my own hopes for how this series is going to handle its its overarching story. Um, I mean, I would generally like to see star trek discovery treat its overarching story or treat its storytelling style in in more of a madman vein yes than a a breaking bad or a or a game of thrones vein i want standalone episodes i want episodes one of the brilliant things about Mad Men is that it is definitely a serialized television show Actions have consequences. Characters yeah. remember things. Each season is telling a very particular story and going in a very, very particular way. The order, you know, the it's episodes not, it's go an, in a specific not, order. Yeah, right. Like it's not like you could sit down and randomly watch any episode of Mad Men and have it make sense. Certainly, it would make some sense, but not a ton of sense if you didn't know what was going on in previous episodes and and episodes to come. But 
the 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 joy of that sort of storytelling structure is that it also gives you a chance to have a Peggy episode, yeah. you know, and and I want a Saru episode. You know what I mean? Like so, yeah. So in other words, if episode three, you know, let's let's speculate. So episode three is Burnham getting on the Discovery and you know getting her second chance, and then we have a few episodes where they're just going on random planets, and then when it's time for that break, that's a huge episode where the Klingons attack again, and, you know, or we deal with a major point in the war, and then we got our hiatus, they finish that up, and then we've got another few more episodes. Like, I think they could work it in a... I mean, we have talked about how TNG handled it, and I frankly love the... the I love the Klingon arc. I think one of the reasons I like Klingons is because how TNG and DS9 took this storyline from almost the beginning of TNG through the very ending of DS9 where Martok finally becomes Chancellor. And that's just a storyline that just kind of grew organically. It looked where these characters were and where this world was, and there wasn't really any ahead-of-time planning in it, but it makes a lot of sense and it feels very right. Um, Yeah. And... This war could go along a similar lines. Um, the way that the Dominion War is handled, for example, we of course we thought that was beautifully done. Um, this show could handle the Klingon War very similarly, and it is the background. It is informing everything they're doing. Every mission that they go on is going to have some kind of, you know, reason mm-hmm. related to the war, or that will still be on their minds. But that doesn't mean that they. I mean, the show, the show, and the ship are called Discovery, right? They need to be discovering things. If they yeah. are, if they are just dealing with a war, then they've kind of pissed away the name. Okay, so are you? Re- I think this is a good opportunity for for me to drop my theory about I'm ready. what this, what the Klingon arc is about. So, so I don't know if you remember this or you heard of this, but but when Brian Fuller first revealed that it was going to take place uh, uh, 10 years before the original series. Mm -hmm. The way he framed that was there was something that was mentioned in the original series that we never saw, that was never explained, that he wanted to go into. And I think that I know what that is. And what is it? I think that this, I don't know if it's the first season. I don't know what the the duration of this storyline is going to be. But I think that the initial story of Discovery is why and how the Klingon neutral zone was established. Okay. Especially because, I mean, they are talking about the borders in the first episode that does get mentioned a couple of times. Yeah, so, so I think it's a good chance that's what, I'm, that's what I'm laying down as my theory. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground. I think that there's just a couple things left to talk about. Um, we've mentioned Saru. I like Saru. Yeah. I think he's a fun. I think he's a fun character. I like the concept of a scaredy cat science officer. Uh, and yet and one the make, who the is, makeup is great. I don't know. I mean, I like that he is all scaredy cat, but he does. I mean, there are he, he when he's needed, he is doing his shit. And I mean, he is Starfleet. I, I I think that speaks well of him. Frankly, I mean, he does. He has earned his uniform, and I like that. Yeah. And I th- I think that um, the other thing that is going to be very interesting to see what happens is is what Discovery looks like, how they shoot Discovery, that the ship, not the show. Because, I don't know, how do you feel about some of the aesthetic changes? I don't necessarily have a problem with them. I don't, you know, I don't think that you could have 
had these characters running around in the velour turtle mechs yeah. of the cage and have it you know be taken seriously at all and i we are certainly not in abram's track i think that you know th- there is a and then there is an attempt made to have the aesthetic in terms of ships and costumes and things of that nature have more of a through line from Star Trek Enterprise up to the cage in a certain sense. I mean, I think that the division colors are the cage, which is a nice little touch. Um, I don't know. I, I like it. I think it looks, I think they've done a good job with it. Am I completely in love with it yet? No, of course not, because this is a brand new Star Trek show and I have lived with the other yeah. Star Trek shows for however long it's been. I mean, um, let's listen, we still, if we were, if we could snap our fingers and be on any ship, it would be uh, the TNG era enterprise, right? I mean, that, that, yeah. that I don't think is even a question. Um, and I like it better than the Abrams Trek, which is way too well lit. Um, I don't like bright white spaces. Um, I like that everything is a little light level darker, um, which especially makes – again, I'm not loving the color scheme, but you didn't even notice that, so there's that. Um, Although I am I am curious why they made the change of the phasers being pew-pew phasers and not the phasers that we've known for Star Trek yeah. all these years. Oh, God. This, the when, when they – when the space battle starts and there are – you know, everybody's firing – don't the lasers sound like really wussy? Like it seemed really like pew pew pew, and I'm like, I know I want the old battle. Star Trek lasers, yeah. which are like, Bleh. they are, you know. But I will say, I love DS9 space battles, and this was a little too chaotic, which is part again oh. part of the point. This is a chaotic battle scene, and that is the aesthetic of the times. But just, I would prefer to watch DS9 space battles. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I mean, I think that if they're establishing, you know, let, let's let's spin this out in, in the most optimistic fashion possible. And let's say that this is going to be the start of another almost 30 year run of Star Trek on television. Oh, God, you know, please. From your TNG, mouth to God's air. TNG to Enterprise. Well, no, sorry, 20 years, 87 to, to 2005. Um, you know, if, if we're still talking about a third Star Trek show in 10 years on Star Trek uh, on Trek about. Uh, maybe this will be the aesthetic. I don't know. If they are establishing a, a new aesthetic storytelling style for, for warp drive and, and what the what the phasers look like and these kinds of things. I mean I'm I did okay like I did like how all the ships kind of pop in. Like that was a cool scene and especially a fairly intimidating one. The way that the ships decloak, all of that was well done. Um Yeah. Oh yeah. god, I hope, because I really have some great ideas for the DS nine, you know, sequel series where that's gonna go. <laughs> Yeah, I really hope that they do that. Um, and I guess maybe the way to wrap this conversation up is, you know, I have not done a ton of looking online. I, I pretty much yeah. stayed offline. I, you know, I, I did some stuff in a Facebook group I'm in, but aside from that, I haven't really tweeted. I tweeted a few things, but but aside from that, I haven't really yeah. engaged with a lot of the conversations surrounding this episode. Engage. And- <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling about Star Trek Discovery after two episodes, but uh, I know that a lot of people were really, really afraid that this was going to not be Star Trek or not feel like Star Trek. And I think that leaving aside all of the sort of mild criticisms of this we've had, some of the pitfalls that we've established, but also some of the things that we've really liked about it. I think this feels like Star Trek and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have this show on the air. I mean, like I said, I, 
finished the first two episodes and like immediately went back and started the first episode again because that says something. I think that these characters are we we've got a new set of characters and we don't yeah. know them all yet and we you know we still have to meet uh the gay doctor and and you know all those people but I'm I'm feeling pretty good about this and and I hope you are too. I'm feeling better having talked to you about it but like I said, I'm ready for the show to start. I really, I'm really looking forward for the most to episode four, frankly. Yeah, once they sort of have that under their belt. They yeah, once they're on the kinks out. Give me, give me the ship, give me the setting, give me the crew, and you know, put them on their first, you know, real adventure. That's what I'm really excited for. But yeah. I'm excited for it, so I guess that says something. I mean, I think that the 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 scene that I keep going back to in my head over and over again is Burnham in the brig, yeah. and the um whoever that officer was that was there, the the young male officer. Really, I mean, talking about how Starfleet—they're not soldiers. This is not the military. We are on a mission of peace. You know, why is this yeah. happening? That to me was the clearest indication that this is a star trek show mm. that that i mean and of course he dies and it's very sad but i don't know there's something about the way that that scene was shot and written that that there's really a, spoke to me there's a panic there that they've never really dealt with before yeah i mean even on i mean we've seen the way that ds9 has handled people dealing with a war that they can't but everybody on that show was a little battle hardened in some way it was nobody's first tour and you know, this was a, you know, everybody had either survived the Borg or the Cardassian occupation or, you know, whatever. And these, you know, again, this is a soft federation and it is one that is utterly, utterly confused, utterly knocked for a loop by this. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be the federation that in 10 years gives Captain Kirk his own ship. So, yeah. Where, where are they going? You know, how do they get from there to here? I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah. And I'm excited for it. And I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, in terms of the production staff and who's doing the show, I noticed so many little fan Easter eggs in these two episodes that, yeah, if nothing else, the people making this show really <laughs> fucking love Star Trek and really know a lot about it. And I mean that one of the one of the ships in the battle was the USS Diplana Hoth, which was the Vulcan ship that made first contact in Star Trek: First Contact. Uh, you know, you get your you know shields down to forty seven percent, so you got your first forty seven in the show. There's a lot of little details in here that you know I, this is a really, if nothing else, this is a really well done show that has a lot of people working on it that love Star Trek, and I am excited to see where it goes. I think that's a good way of putting it. All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. This discussion of the Vulcan Hello and Battle at the Binary Stars. If you have any thoughts on these two episodes you would like to share with us, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trekaboutshow.com. We also have a Patreon. If this is your first time listening to Trekabout or your 265th time listening to Trekabout, because I I think that's what this episode is, believe it or not, you can go to patreon.com slash trekaboutshow and give now. It also supports our other podcast, Tuning In, uh, we are talking about this week uh, in three days, the X-Files episodes Nisei and 731, which, if I remember correctly, Richard and I both really like their mythology episodes, and they are fantastic. 
Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are there. Truck About Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review for Truck About. It is the best way for new fans to find the show. Next week, we continue going into Uncharted Territory with Star Trek Discovery Episode 3. Context is for kings.